announcements to mention that as we enter into our second week of, of praying as a church for 21 days, that uh, the prayer guide is out in the lobby. So if you are joining us in this prayer time, as you head out in the lobby, just kind of angle right over by the table and you'll see the bright yellow sheets there that will lead you into the second week. Now, if you go home and you forgot it, or if you are online with our live stream today, just feel free that uh, go online to our website or to the Facebook page of the church, and you can find the prayer guide there for the second week. So you have several options there in case you forget to pick one up today. Last Sunday, I mentioned to you that when surveys are done of church people, oftentimes it reveals that when the issue or subject of prayer is brought up, either from behind the pulpit or in a community group, guilt is often the typical response of most people. Now think about it. Is it any wonder that we struggle in this area? Because good communication is key in any relationship on a horizontal level between us. So why would that not also be key in the vertical relationship with our Heavenly Father? Which means if Satan can disrupt us in this area, discourage us, or confuse us with guilt in the vital area of prayer with our Heavenly Father, then he has won a tremendous victory over us. So in light of the fact that guilt is such a widespread reaction in the whole area of prayer, could it be then? Could it be that then so much of what we think we know about prayer is simply hogwash? What's going on inside of us that really stops or inhibits us from praying? Why do we seem to lack such confidence there? Why when church people gather and we say, let's have a time of prayer, and who wants to lead off, there's this awkward 15 to 20 seconds of dead silence? Maybe it's because inside of our minds, we're often thinking to ourselves, you know what, to pray about this, it won't do anything, it won't change anything. In other words, you kind of have a fatalistic attitude of whatever. Or maybe you're thinking something else. Maybe you're thinking, who am I to ask for this? I mean, I'm not worthy. And you're thinking about the sin in your life. You're thinking about how you're not very old age-wise, or you're thinking you don't have a whole lot of spiritual maturity. So who am I to talk to God? Or maybe you're thinking, God isn't interested in what I would have to say or what I'm thinking. Or maybe you're thinking, you know what, I'd feel stupid. Uh, I wouldn't know what to ask for. Uh, I'm afraid I'd say something wrong. I mean, after all, he's God. And I I don't want to feel shamed like Dorothy was shamed in front of the Wizard of Oz when she made her request. Or... Maybe you're thinking, you know what, I already know what God's going to answer to my prayers, so why even ask? Or maybe you're thinking you don't really trust His heart. I mean, you look around at the circumstances that you're going through in life, and you wonder, does He even really care about what I'm facing? It's not, that I tr- it's not really that I'm doubting that God is good, I just don't see Him being good to me. That's why it's really important for us to carefully examine the whole area of prayer. And let me invite you to open up your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 5 to verse 13. 
Because when it comes to prayer, what Jesus teaches us about prayer is meant to set the captives free. Now, as we come to Luke chapter 11, we need to appreciate the immediate context of what's going on. What Jesus has to say about prayer is part of a larger conversation that started. Look at verse 1. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So here we have the men that are with Jesus 24-7, and they're fascinated by the way Jesus prayed. I mean, they were there. They saw him pray. They heard him pray. And, and what their eyes saw and what their ears heard created within their own hearts this desire to approach God in the same way that Jesus was approaching God. Which tells us prayer is one of the windows into the most intimate part of our heart. The way we pray reveals the real nature of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Just like the way we communicate with another person here on earth is indicative and revealing about the kind of relationship we have with them. One of my mentors in life was Dr. Howard Hendricks, who is now in heaven with the Lord. And he once told me the story about he was leading a Bible study with a bunch of businessmen in Dallas, Texas. One week, one of those gentlemen came to Christ as his Savior. The following week, when they met for their Bible study and they came to their prayer time, Dr. Hendricks said, a few of the prayers that were being prayed by some of these guys were typically, they were very timid, they were very safe expressions that you often hear. Finally, the new Christian jumped in to pray. Dr. Hendricks said, this is how he prayed. He said, hi, God, this is Jim. Remember me? I was introduced to your son Jesus last week, and I trusted him as my Savior. And man, I just want to tell you what a difference you've made in my life. Dr. Hendricks said it was like a bomb went off in the room. <laughs> he said, that guy's refreshingly authentic and real prayer just transformed the way everybody then started praying. So Jesus willingly, by his example and by the disciples coming and ask him now, teaches them, and by the way, he's now going to teach us to pray. And in verse 2 to verse 4, we have what's commonly called the Lord's Prayer. Look at it. Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. So notice, Jesus is teaching us what to pray. Not that we have to use the exact words. And there's no problem when we as a church or you individually recite the Lord's Prayer, but it's not meant to be the only thing or the only way in which you are praying. Because notice in verse 5, Jesus changes direction from what we pray to how we pray. Now understand, both of those things are important. It's important what we pray about, but it's also important how we pray. 
Starting in verse 5, Jesus is going to turn to the how of our prayers. And I think he does this and takes an extended time with this because this is the choke point for the hogwash so much of us have swallowed. We're taught how to pray through two very vivid scenarios, from verse 5 down to verse 13. Let's look at each one of them. First, in the first scenario, a friend in need goes to another friend. That's verse 5 to verse 10. And Jesus is describing here a real-life predicament. It's a situation that everybody hearing these words could relate to and could easily imagine themselves being in. And the story, as you may know, revolves around a relationship between two friends. Now, understand something. When Luke here uses the word friend. He's not talking about someone that you have just kind of a casual acquaintance with. No, he's describing someone with whom you have a mutual devotion to. There's a mutual kindness that goes back and forth. You both feel that this relationship is very dear to you. You might even use the word kindred spirits. It's someone that you have a unique chemistry with. It's a special relationship with significant depth to it. That's the idea of friend here in Luke 11. So pay attention here to some of the details. They're very important. Jesus presents a scene with a question built into it. Verse 5, which of you has a friend and you would go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. Okay, so what's happened? So friend number one has another friend that this guy over here doesn't know about or doesn't know as a friend. And he has come to his home after a journey, but it's a journey that's ended in the middle of the night. So evidently the trip was really long, the trip was delayed, or it was an unexpected trip and he just surprised the guy by showing up. It's the middle of the night and the host does not have anything to put on the table before him, which in that culture at that time, like in many cultures in our day even, that would be an embarrassment not even to offer him anything to be able to eat. So here's the question Jesus is posing. Would you run over to your other friend's, close, other friend's home in the middle of the night and ask for three loaves of bread? Well, if that other person was truly a friend, you probably would do that. But understand what that means in this culture, in this day. By this time of night, your friend has been in bed and asleep for four to five hours. They would go to sleep when the sun went down. And so what is this other friend's response when the banging starts pounding on, the, on his door? Well, look at verse 7. He says, do not bother me. Now, it's fascinating but and difficult because the English word bother there is actually two different Greek words put together. The first Greek word means to bring or to cause, and the second Greek word means trouble or difficulty or labor. So you put those together, and that is to, bo to bother someone is to cause them trouble, to cause them a problem, to cause them difficulty. We might say, don't inconvenience me. So why is that second friend's response so rude? Don't bother me. 
Well, look at the last part of verse 7. We'll see it. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. (laughs) See, unlike our day, the average family at that time, everybody lived in a one-room home, which means that that one room was multi-functional. It was the kitchen, it was the living room, it was the classroom, it it was the play area, it was the bedroom. And so at night, once the outside door is shut, sleeping pillows and cushions and blankets are spread out on the floor, so literally it's wall-to-wall people, and it wouldn't be unusual if there are some of the farm animals in there as well. So to ask his friend to get up is not just bothering the guy from his sleep, it's also disturbing everybody else in the family. You're going to have to step over or on some people. You're going to be making noise. You're going to be moving sleepy kids out of the way to get the door open. You're going to have to be lighting a lamp. You're going to have to be scavenging around to to find the requested bread. And then we come to verse 8, and here is the crux or the crucial point of this first scenario. Verse 8. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Okay, notice something here. Even though the first friend comes on the basis of friendship, the second friend does not respond on the basis of the friendship that the two of them have. In other words, the depth of their relationship does not get that man out of bed to help. And did you notice in the middle of verse 8 is this little word, yet? It's a word that has strong, a strong, emphatic focus. It's, it's, it's saying, watch out for what happens next. So if someone was reading this story, they might read it like this. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, and then on with the rest of the verse. So, what are we, so what's Jesus wanting us to notice here? The second friend responds to the first friend's impudence. Now, some of your Bibles have the unfortunate translation of that word as persistence. Why is that an unfortunate translation? Well, it is persistence, but it's much, much more than that. The difficulty of translation here is because this is the only place in the New Testament where this word's used. But we do have a negative use of this word in the Old Testament. So hold your finger here in Luke 11. Turn back, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 7, and we're going to see the negative use of this word. Now, as we come to Proverbs chapter 7, understand that we are coming to one of those very awkward chapters in the Bible. Awkward in the sense that it describes a seduction scene for us. Verse 10. And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. 
now on the street, now on the market. And at every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with a bold face, she says to him, and then she goes on to describe all the preparations that she's made in her own home for the invitation that she gives him in verse 18, which is, come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. Okay, do you get the picture here? This woman, out in public, physically grabs this guy who is not her husband. She plants a sloppy, wet kiss on his lips and invites him to join her in bed. And the description of this woman is intended to stun us purposefully. Because everything that she is doing there is described by one word, and this is the word that's in Luke 11, in verse 13, when it says she has a bold face. Bold is the word. See, this is not the way a woman's supposed to act. She is being bold, but more than that, she's being brazen, she's being daring, she's being audacious, even impudent in her actions and her words. She's blowing right by that which is socially acceptable. She's breaking all the rules. Bold. Okay, now back to Luke 11. There's the negative example. That very same word now is picked up by Jesus here in Luke 11 and is used here. And that's why it's so difficult to translate the one word by one English word. Because this term is describing how the first friend is being incredibly bold, coming in the middle of the night when it's going to be very disruptive. It's not socially acceptable to come at an inconvenient hour and, and ask for some bread when everybody is already in bed. But again, it's more than bold, isn't it? If you, if you allow Luke uh, Proverbs 7 to, to give us the feel and taste of this word, it's being audacious. It's being daring. It's impudent. It's brazen in his persistence. So it is ignoring what is conventional. It's blowing by all that which is accepted by, by the standards of conduct that everybody would agree upon. It's, it's, there's no shame in making this request. It's breaking all the rules. So in what way does this scenario help me know how to pray? Well, Jesus tells us. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 and verse 10, actually. Verse 9. So I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Jesus describes the how of praying as a bold, audacious even brazen, asking, seeking, and knocking. That's exactly what the first friend did in pursuit of three loaves of bread. Now, the other thing you need to understand is that these three words, ask, seek, knock, given to us by Jesus, are commands. They're not suggestions. So let me get technical for a moment. The verb tense in these commands indicates ongoing action. So you could 
literally translate verse 9 with keep on seeking, keep on, I mean, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. So again, Jesus is not encouraging us to be like the first friend. He's commanding us to be like the first friend in being audacious, bold, daring, even brazen in our persistence in making our requests known to God in prayer. Which tells us something very important. That our concern with convention, our concern with the right vocabulary, our concern with what other people might think is acceptable by the way we pray is what keeps us from continually asking, seeking, and knocking for God in prayer. Oftentimes what we end up thinking is, you know, I've already asked once. I've already been down this road before. I've already knocked on that door, and I've not gotten a response, so I'm just giving up. Do you see how just even in this first scenario, a lot of hogwash about prayer is just swept out the door? Because I'm not sure what you think about prayer. But Jesus just corrected a lot of this hogwash that we've, that we've held on to because this very first scenario reveals an important truth. And let me state the truth like this. When it comes to knowing how to pray, do not hold back, but be bold, audacious in your persistence, making your requests known to God. That's what that first scenario is intended to teach us. But that's only one of two scenarios. We've got a second one. So ask yourself, why do we need a second scenario? Wasn't that plain enough? No, because the first, the second extends the first, but brings balance to it. Because if all we have is the first scenario, the first story, then we could be tempted to see God as that second friend who doesn't want to be bothered by our needs. And yet, if we're bold and persistent and brazen enough in our audacity, then He will reluctantly help us. That's bad theology, folks. So we need the second scenario to come in and counter the potential that we would slide into that kind of thinking. So here's scenario number two. If the first scenario was a friend in need goes to a friend, scenario two, starting in verse 11, is a son in need who goes to the father. Look at verse 11 and verse 12. So what father among you if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? Okay, what's the issue? What's the issue that's going on here? The common thread of what the son is asking for? Uh, food. That's the same thread in the first scenario, where the one friend's looking for bread. So we're not talking about wants, we're talking about needs. In the first scenario, the first friend did not go to the second and say in the middle of the night, hey, do you have a couple of extra tickets to the Twins game next week? I would really like to borrow them, me and my other friend. No, we're talking about a need, we're talking about hunger, we're talking about food here. So in the second scenario, what do we have? We've got a hungry son, and on the other hand, we have a father who's in a position to meet that need. And that's a normal part of a healthy father-son relationship. 
The son asks for the father because he's got a need. And Jesus points out here what a normal father will not do. He says if the son comes and asks for a fish, he won't give him a serpent. In other words, he's saying the father will not give the son something inappropriate. Yeah, you can eat a snake. Never done it. I hear it tastes like chicken. Um, But for the Jew, a snake was unclean food. It would be inappropriate for him to eat that. Or if the son comes and asks for an egg, he would not be given a scorpion. I guess scorpions can be eaten. I've never tried it. The danger in eating a scorpion is the endeavor which with you have to go through because of its poisonous tail to actually be able to eat it. So what's Jesus' point? A father is not going to give the son something dangerous or harmful. Okay, what's the point of the scenario? What's Jesus driving at? Well, look at the opening statement of verse 13. If you then, who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. Okay, just stop right there. So Jesus is saying, even though human fathers who have a sinful nature, which at times makes them very self-centered and sometimes mean, yet out of love for their children, they know how to give what is good when asked about a need. That's the point Jesus is making. Now look at the phrase in the middle of verse 13. How much more will your heavenly Father... Okay, stop right there for a moment. We have a heavenly Father who is perfectly good, has no trace of self-centeredness or meanness or evil. So how is He going to respond to our requests then? How much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Okay, Doesn't that last statement surprise you? Wouldn't you have thought it was going to say, how much more will your heavenly Father give what is good to those who ask? But that's not what Jesus says. What he's saying is that the giving of the Holy Spirit is the best gift God can give us. Which means that having the fullness of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the best thing that we can have at any given moment. So, for example, and this is not a uh, a complete list, but let me give you at least a few things to think about. So, for example, in Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 16, we are given the Holy Spirit in order that the abiding presence of Christ in us is real. We can experience it. That comes by the fullness of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Romans chapter 5, 5 says we are given the Holy Spirit so that it actually allows us to experience the love of God in our lives. We feel loved by Him. Romans 15 and verse 13, we have the Holy Spirit and allows us to have a sense of hope in every single one of our circumstances. Wow, that's really good to have. John chapter 14 and verse 26 teaches us that the Holy Spirit teaches us all things and will remind us of the words of Jesus. Boy, I need need that a lot. 
Romans chapter 8 and verse 11, the Holy Spirit brings life to our mortal bodies. Romans chapter 8 and verse 16, the Holy Spirit confirms to us our standing as we are God's children. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 tells me that I've been given a spiritual gift by the Holy Spirit that I can use that will benefit and bless other people. So in so many ways, to answer our need, our need in prayer, God says, I will give you the Holy Spirit. What's Jesus driving at? If our Heavenly Father will, in response to our need, give us the very best thing possible, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, then will He not also give us any other good thing that may not be quite that exciting, but it's still good for us? That's what Jesus is driving at. Paul ends up at the very same place, though he comes at it from a different direction in in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32 when he says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So the second scenario is revealing a very balancing second truth, and and I put it like this about how to pray. Trust your heavenly Father's heart that He will give what is best when we ask. We've been given two scenarios, and it means we're supposed to put them together. It may feel like we're breaking all the rules. It may feel, it may feel to you like you're breaking all the rules that you have been taught about prayer. And yet, when it comes to how to pray, Jesus is inviting us to be boldly audacious in persistently asking for what we need because we can trust our Heavenly Father's heart that He will be good to us. Wow. (laughs) Many of you know um, pastor and author Tony Evans A few years ago, he was in Columbia, South Carolina to preach at an evangelistic crusade, and they were at the University of South Carolina, and they were going to be using their football stadium. Thousands had gathered for the evening session, and news reports indicated that a very strong thunderstorm was headed right in their direction. In fact, the storm was expected to hit right at 7 p.m., right when the crusade was supposed to start. Well, indeed, the sky got very dark and the threat of cancellation was very real. So a a group of preachers and other church leaders who were responsible for putting on the crusade decided that they needed to gather and have a time of prayer. Evans said that he noted that in this time of prayer, a lot of the preachers prayed what he would consider to be safe prayers, ones that were quite undemanding of God considering their situation. Then a woman named Linda spoke up and said, do you mind if I pray? He said, sure. Tony said her prayer went something like this. Lord, thousands have gathered to hear the good news about your son. And it would be a shame on your name for us to have all these unbelievers go home tonight without the gospel when you control the weather and if you don't stop it. So in the name of Jesus, Address this storm. 
And with that, the prayer meeting ended. Well, everybody took their places, places the, the sky was continuing to get very, very threatening. The leader of the crusade told everybody gathered there that we'll go on as long as we can, and people started popping open their umbrellas. A man sitting next to Linda, and she was up on the, on the platform, opened up his umbrella and offered to shield her, and she refused. Evans said he watched the storm clouds come towards the stadium, divide. It rained outside of the stadium on both sides and then went beyond them, came back together, and moved on. Everybody gathered in the stadium stayed dry. After that event, Tony Evans said, how did Linda get what the preachers didn't? She had the boldness, the shameless audacity to ask because she trusted her heavenly Father's heart. Let's pray. Father, I want this. I want the kind of spirit inside me that balances these two scenarios to be bold and audacious and almost brazen in my prayers because I trust your heart and I know you'll give what's good. Father, we need to change inside of us for a lot of the hogwash that has just clogged up things on the inside of us to release us to pray. Lord, I ask that you would Free us up from being concerned what others think about the vocabulary we use or what they think about our audaciousness. But be bold, again, because we're trusting your heart. We're not looking about what other people think. And so, Father, for all of us here this morning, in our personal lives, Lord, there are things that are painful, things that have been so disappointing to us, things that we can't explain and we don't even know what to do with. Lord, teach us to be bold and audacious in our prayer as we trust your heart. And Father, for us as a church, for us as a body of believers, for things here at Lakewood, things in the past that still bother us and concern us that are painful, things about our future that we don't know where it's going, Lord, help us to be boldly audacious and brazen in our prayers because we trust your Father's heart. And Lord, I pray that the best thing you give us, the Holy Spirit, will change us on the inside to do just that. So Father, for me, who desperately needs this, as anybody else does, Father, for my brothers and sisters in this room too, Father, would you help us to pray as Jesus taught his disciples, not just in what we pray, but in how we pray. Oh, Lord, that's our request, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.